Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Marie Keenan, who is a lecturer at the School of Social Policy, Social Work, and Social Justice at UCD Dublin, and a member of the Advisory, Advisory Board of UCD's Criminology Institute. She was instrumental in establishing the Granada Institute in Dublin for the treatment of men who had, her, who had perpetrated sexual crime against minors. She's also internationally recognized as one of the main leading international scholars in two mainstreams of comparative social policy research and scholarship, namely child uh, sexual abuse and the Catholic Church and restorative justice and sexual violence. She has taught and led special workshops and presented her research and clinical work in Ireland, the UK, Belgium, Finland, the USA, Australia, and South Africa. Dr. Marie Keenan, what's the crack? How are you? How are you doing? Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for doing this. This is I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Do- okay. Dr. Marie, um, as Jim's introduction showed, you've got quite the resume there. I just wanted to take it all the way back and just ask simply, how did this all start? How did you begin this journey? Well, I trained initially as a social worker, went to work in Brixton in London. Um, there, that was in the 70s, there met children coming into care and so on because of abuse in the family and so on and I got interested in really getting very good child protection policies and services for children and then I came back to and, and that's what I did came back to Cork uh, in Ireland and worked in uh, central in a psychiatric unit in a general hospital and it was interesting there because as well as people coming in and out of hospital with you know various uh well-being issues and and mental health challenges and I also began to meet some victims of sexual violence there who were coming into hospital um, and telling us that very Mm. traumatic events had happened so I was kind of getting interested now in adults who had experienced sexual abuse anyway I won't go through all my CV but over time then I went to work in adolescent psychiatry and then I went to work in prison And I've always, this whole area of sexual violence just kind of kept with me. No matter what I was doing, I kept finding and meeting either victims or perpetrators. And so I had gone from Mm. child protection to then thinking how, how we should respond to this problem is by treating offenders, because I knew that many offenders have many victims. And as well as giving therapy for victims, I thought if we could help the offenders then we could stop them offending and reoffending, and then we would prevent more victims and then so that's what I did and then I joined the Granada Institute was a founding member of the Granada Institute where we offered treatment for men who had perpetrated abuse against minors and so that was all going well the therapy for the offenders the therapy for the victims the child protection stuff was all going grand and then I realized that actually many victims were telling us that they weren't getting justice through the criminal justice system and I started to kind of look into that and at the time we had the savvy study in Ireland which was in 2002 and what that told us and my own experience was telling me was also that many victims didn't report um, their crime to the police and that of those who did few Mm. few got good outcomes from the criminal justice system Mm. Um, and so I was in the Granada Institute at the time uh, treating offenders meeting victims and I began to think there must be ways that we could um, 
improve the, the, the justice outcomes for victims and maybe restorative justice was a way. But I also thought it would maybe improve accountability for offenders who were accountable, it appeared to me at, at the time, accountable to nobody. But then it also uh, struck me that many of them, victims and offenders, could actually improve their own healing outcomes and we could move towards a kind of a better society if we found other mechanisms. And that's where I came to restorative justice. Perfect. Uh, you, you kind of touched on it there. One of my um, the questions was you said that, you know, people often didn't even go to the police and when they did, they would maybe not get satisfactory um outcomes of of telling their story and i heard in one of your interviews you you briefly mentioned um a a a child a young girl who had been sexually abused by her grandfather and um and at the start anyway that wasn't taken seriously kind of everyone was thinking that she must be uh this is a bit she must be hysterical you know she must have misunderstood the situation surely her grandfather couldn't have um have essentially abused her and then it came it came out that actually that that was the case why do you think that um that that is the case why do you think that we we seem to categorize these especially young girls as as hysterical as as they've misunderstood they've misinterpreted the situation and that there's no possible way that um a family member an older an older gentleman has has abused them well i think because it's if you have let we'll take that case if you if you're the mother of that girl let's say and it's your your own father who has done this it's like and you've known your father all your mm. life and you've never suspected or whatever it's like it's a lot to take on but i mean that case that i talked about that was quite a number of years ago i have to say certainly in ireland and i think internationally we've moved a good bit of the way from then and i think that through mm. stay safe programs, through the help of the media, through victims telling their stories. We've now come to the point where I think children who disclose are generally believed now. It's still a shock maybe for families and adults who retrospectively disclose, I think in the main are believed now. But when it comes down to justice, even when mm. you go to the police, my experience of the police in Ireland is that they have really improved their interview techniques. They've improved their disposition to victims. And the police have uh, generally are doing a reasonably good to an excellent job with victims. But the problem, in my view, is when the guards or the police do their do up their file, it, this is for victims who have gone to the police and it goes to the director of public prosecution very few yeah. cases proceed to trial because for the director of public public prosecution for a case to go to trial it has to the evidence in their view has to be beyond reasonable doubt and if it is a child again right. an adult and so on but i think so why if you were to ask me why do i think that many victims don't report i think it's because they feel mm. doubly victimized often by the criminal justice system. And I think it's like, apart yeah. from disclosing to their family and all that, that and the risk of being believed or not, of not being believed, apart from that, I think that victims watch other cases and they say, oh my God, why would I go through that? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, and do you, what, what are, in, in your experience, what is, 
what are the effects of so, you know someone who maybe has had the courage to come forward and 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 to, to tell others about their their experience and then for it to play out in the courts for example and maybe not get the outcome that they they were hoping for the, the justice that they were hoping for what are the negative effects on on that child or maybe even adult who's retrospectively talking about something that happened um previously well like at the moment we have uh, support for victims who go to the court so some of the victim agencies have victim advocacy services and they go to a court accompany the victim to court so they've some support but it's still very um problematic when um you know so for the victim let's say if the with the kinds of cross-examination of their evidence that can take place by defence lawyers, it can it can feel very undermining. It can feel they're not, that they're lying. It can feel that they're up to no good. That they're just trying to ruin the life of the accused, if you like. Um, so that's one way. And if there is a poor outcome for the victim, as in there's no conviction. Um, it's like their lives have been dragged through the court as they see it. And uh, they have, effectively, they feel they're not being believed. But also, I mean, we have had debacles not that very long ago where communities, you know, small communities have come to the court and like clapped when the offender was found not guilty or gone up and shook his hand and all this stuff. Hmm. Those kinds of behaviours are not that helpful. So I think the cross-examination of evidence, although we know that has to take place by definition in in the court of law, that's how it works. But sometimes I'm very um, concerned about the line of inquiry um, that goes on in these cross-examinations. And then if he is found guilty, there's another part that is problematic, which is it's it's allowed for in criminal cases, but these character witnesses. So the man may be found guilty of rape mm. of someone, let's say, in the GAA or whatever, and then someone in the GAA else comes up and, and gives a character witness as to his work for the Vincent de Paul or whatever. I believe these character witnesses in convicted uh, cases where there's sexual violence involved should be just gotten away with done away with entirely so it all means mm. victims it's like an undermining you know and whatever so some victims are able for it because if they get a good outcome they feel vindicated or validated or whatever but um if it's if it's not a good outcome they feel you know like that the state had let them down that the criminal justice system has let them down, that nobody believes them and that nobody cares. Yeah, and I was thinking as well, you know, we often talk um, about the me- you know, men of male offenders and uh, and sexually abusing these poor girls or women, which is ob- obviously that's often the case. Um, but there are cases where, where you know, it's been a boy or a man who's been sexually offended and, and they kind of get even less support, I feel, because... Um, 
you know that for example step mum porn is, is is one of the most uh popular top um, categories that there is yeah people don't think of a man as being able like you can't be sexually abused because you're a man um it must have been an enjoyable experience for you i remember during the whole me too movement a famous actor terry cruz who is a who is a giant of a man he came out and said that his uh, agent had sexually abused him one time and he went on to explain the situation and basically it was the agent took advantage of the power structure and the power play because obviously he's in charge of terry cruz's career um and no one could seem to sympathize with him because he was such a huge man they, they just thought he was trying to jump onto the bandwagon of the me too movement what, what do you do you think our attitudes are changing um towards men or, or boys who come out um with with sexual abuse stories uh, and if they're not what do you think we could do to change those attitudes yeah uh, look i feel you know i feel very sad and sorry and stand in solidarity with female children and female adults who've been abused but it is a real challenge and I I stand similarly with men and males who've been abused and a lot of my professional life has been working with men both who have been abused and who have perpetrated abuse uh, separately, not the same person now, but we can come back to that. But yeah, it is diff- very difficult for a, a male, especially a big man, to come out and say he was sexually abused because I think societal attitudes, there is pre- prejudice towards that. Um, but I think it's changing. And I think the boys who were abused by Catholic clergy were part of changing this attitude because clergy abused primarily uh pre- and post-pubertal boys. And so a lot of those young men, now adult men, took to the airwaves to tell their story. And I think, certainly in Ireland, and I think in the United States and other jurisdictions, those boys who were abused by clergy, uh, in putting out the story, they, I think, began to change the attitudes to the understanding that boys can also be abused. But I think... Mm. No, in terms of the trauma, like there are lots of impacts of sexual abuse on children. And but sometimes it's the trauma is increased the closer the relationship of the person who abused you. And also uh, the trauma is increased by sometimes a sense on the victim's part of their participation or having participated. So, for instance, for, let's say, mm. pre-pubertal boys or post-pubertal boys who maybe when they were being abused became aroused, you know, an involuntary response to non-sexual stimuli even. and But afterwards, that becomes, why not? That wasn't abuse because if I was abused, how would I become aroused? How would I, you know, and so on. So we need a lot of education to help, you know, to help these young boys uh, realize that they weren't guilty. It was an adult who was doing this to them. But can I just say one more thing about this? So I think social attitudes changed and we now realize that boy children Uh, can be abused and we even realize that adult men can be sexually violated and they can they can be raped in various circumstances anally raped but what I think we're slower to come to accept is that women also perpetrate abuse 
And so if you're a boy child mm. who was abused by your female mother or your granny or your aunt, you know, it's very difficult to get that story out there because, you know, for all the the obvious reasons, be like, how could women abuse and whatever? Well, we well know women abuse um, using implements and fingers and all sorts. So it's your own point necessarily now. But I think boys who are abused by mm. females uh, have a harder time being believed. Marie, can I, can I ask, with your experience and your research, have you found that there are certain contributing factors to uh, people perpetrating sexual abuse? Like, have you found that often it is the case that this person had such a childhood or had was surrounded in such an environment? Or is it still <laughs> very un- unclear as to why these people commit these crimes? No, I think I think we have become very clear. Uh, there's loads of research has been done on this, and including my own and various others, on um, how is it and why is it that a man will take men at the moment? Why is it that this man would perpetrate mm-hmm. abuse on a minor or on his female partner or you know on on a, on his child's friend or whatever? And the first thing I would say is that we're really clear about the context of these things. It's about power and control. So I don't mean to be glib when I say Mm. that they do it because they think they can and because they think they can get away with it. And so a lot of men and women, indeed, who have abused children, um, never believed that the children would tell and they never believed that the children would grow up and sometimes they even believed uh, and tell they they sometimes even believed that the children wouldn't remember um so the the first mm. important thing here is that this is about power opportunity and control they do it because they can now Let's go to the next bit. Of course, lots of people, every time we're in a relationship of power, we're all in different relationships of power um, and by definition. And so we don't all abuse in our relationships of power, although we could, let's say, we could abuse in emotional ways, we could abuse, you know, in all sorts of ways, including sexually, when we're in the power position and we don't. So what is it then? Are there other factors in the people who do abuse that enable this to become uh, a problem. And I think there are lots of factors in there, uh, sometimes to do with childhood experiences, sometimes to do with um, lacking in empathy, inability to be to put themselves in the place of the other. And I think that would be a big, big factor that the person, let's say mm. the adult dad, who is abusing the child, would need to be able to put himself in the position of the child and look back at the dad from the child's position and say, Dad, what you're doing is is not good for me. And many adults who abuse can't put themselves in the position of their victim. They might be very empathetic to other people, you know, and certainly with the clergy, they were very good in the parish and all that, but they just had a block around let's say, empathy for 14-year-old boys and began to feel they were their pals rather than 
that they were in the power position relative to that child. But I would never take um, life circumstance. So let's say someone who had experienced abuse or someone who had traumatic experiences as a child. One would never accept any of that as an excuse or a reason for the abuse that they go on to perpetrate. Because what we know is many adults who have experienced very traumatic childhoods, including sexual abuse themselves, never go on to sexually abuse anyone. The majority don't. So Mm. it would be really wrong, and there's a lot of confusion about it, it would be wrong to say that the abuse you you experienced or the trauma you experienced in your own life is what caused you to offend. No, it may be part of your own history that made you angry or uh, lacking in empathy or whatever it is, but you abused, the person who abused did so because you were in a power relationship vis-a-vis the person that you were abusing and because you thought you'd get away with it, basically. And Marie, I just wanted to ask, you know, there seems to be almost uh, two forms of it in, in, in the sense of, You've got the uh, the examples that we've been using so, uh, up to now have been abuse within a family um, relationship. Okay, so someone who's very close, um, and 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 then abuse, and then you've got the, you know, the guy who's waiting around the corner who who rapes a woman who they don't know them. It's just a complete one off act. Why do you think that people within a family relationship why would they do it is it is it because of that heightened sense of oh i think i might get away with it and it's almost more titillating in the sense of i'm doing it under all these people's noses and they have no idea it, what 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 draws someone to do it within their own family nucleus yeah um when we think about offenders whether outside the family or inside and we'll stick with inside at the moment you think that there are a number of factors involved. One is power. I've mentioned that already. The next is power, power and control. The next is anger. The next is sexuality issues. And the next is what we'll call clumsy attempt at attachment or at intimacy. And so you never get a sexual offense, whether mm. inside a family or outside, without uh, some variant of all of those four factors. So let's say, the, I'll t- take an example of an offender in a family. Um, sometimes the primary driver mm-hmm. is he feels powerless in his own life. And by having this secret with the child uh, outside from his wife, he feels you know more powerful in his life because he's abusing the child. He doesn't call it abuse, of course. He calls it being intimate with the child. When the mother is gone to bingo, he abuses the child. He call doesn't call it, I'm abusing the child. He calls it, I'm being intimate. He tells the child a five, six, seven, it's our little secret, don't tell mammy. In that guy's case, he he's obviously, he feels more powerful in his life now because he has secrets and he's something going on outside of the wife. He may have a bit of anger. Um, he's obviously quite controlling. Um, he clearly has some kind of sexuality stuff because if you're attracted to be sexually in some way touching a small child, you have something 
you know, going on in the sexuality department. And he may even feel that he's being intimate with the child, as in a clum- uh, particularly close to the child. So all of those factors are at play. Mm. One might be the primary driver. So then in another case, so in that case, you could say that the primary driver is a sense of, you know, powerlessness and a sense of power and the other factors are in there. But you have, a, could have, and I have had, um, you know, a very angry person who was outwardly um, kind of passive aggressive, you know, compliant in the family towards the wife. The wife would go um, out with her sisters on a, you know, every second Wednesday and he'd abuse the child. And in that case, he was livid with the wife. So very angry with her Mm. partner, with his wife. And so in some ways, his anger propelled, his anger was the primary driver. And it's almost like he felt he was spoiling her child, you know? her child, not his child, and angry primary driver. But again, all the other factors had to be in there. Some uh, sexuality issues, clearly power and control and so on. And we often find with um, where there's men who rape outside the family, like someone jumping out the back of 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 a bush, you know, and jumping on a woman, you are it's it's the same factors are involved anger power and control clumsy attempt at intimacy and definitely sexuality issues and uh i've been involved with mm-hmm. like i've also of where the primary driver is all four of those but what do you think about a sexual offender being able to i'm not sure if recover is the right right word but to to be, you know, they've been in, in jail. Um, they've been convicted of the crime. For them to be released safely back into society, do you believe that that can be the case, or do you believe that once you know you have these problems and you've you've acted upon them, uh, do you believe that you're always going to be a threat to society in some way, shape, or form? Well, we've very good evidence that uh, therapy can be helpful in or rehabilitation, whatever you want to call it in helping these men to stop Mm -hmm. offending. And so if you take the way that I have uh, kind of portrayed this, it's about uh, opportunity, power and control. Uh, So if it's almost like, and this is my own perspective, having worked with sex offenders for many, many years, many decades now, it involves a decision People talk about impulse and, I, yeah. you know, I don't go with this impulse. It's always a decision. When a man d- abuses a child or an adult woman, he has made a decision. Now, a man on a galloping horse might notice that he's making a decision, but he is always making a decision. He's standing behind that bush or he spots this woman and he decides, I'm going for it. He, he's decided, I'm going for it. And it's within his control to make another decision, which is, I'm not going for it. My God, I'm losing my mind thinking I must jump on that woman. So in a therapy program, we can help these men to understand how they came to make that decision, all the factors that were in it, uh, etc., and how they can make other decisions. 
And then as part of the therapy, we help them Mm. any childhood issues or, you know, anger issues or uh, sense of isolation in their lives or sexuality issues or whatever. You can deal with all those as like the insurance policy, if you like, to take the charge out of the system, the potentiality to do it again. But even if they had done very good therapy and all that, the primary thing is that we help them to realize the impact on the victim and in multiple ways, how victims are hurt and harmed in the short and long term and how they can, they made a decision Mm -hmm. and then they can make a different decision. So it's not an illness that needs to be you know, medicated for life. It's not an illness over which they have no control. It's not a psychiatric condition. It's a decision. And they can learn to make another decision. Um, So, yes, we have very good evidence that these guys can stop offending. And if we found, let's say, in a treatment program or in prison when a guy is free before they're released, what you're looking for, the change you're looking for is the internal, a shift in internal motivation and internal self-policing so that they know if those thoughts ever came to them again, that they would stop them right there dead or they'd know to call someone to say, mm-hmm. oh, God, you know, a support person or whatever. So you're looking for good internal motivation and if you like lighter external uh, monitoring, you know, post-release supervision for a little while and so on. But if you don't get internal change, then you need heavy-duty external, if you like, monitoring by yeah. the probation officer. And, and uh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I wanted to ask as well, um, you answered that comprehensively, by the way, that's very clear. I, I have... Um, yeah, unfortunately, I I have a a loved one, a close one who who has been sexually abused, and I think going through that experience together as a family has heightened all of our senses to towards sexual abuse and uh, uh, the the effects of it. And um, I started to to realize certain kind of behavioral patterns that existed amongst just young guys. You know, I'm a young guy myself, how we would speak about women, how we would act towards women in certain circumstances. Um, uh, for, you know, for example, you go to a nightclub and a lot of young boys think that it's okay to, you know, to pinch a girl's bum as she walks by, um, to say something derogatory, to keep on pestering them to go back to their house, even though they've told them no five times over. And I've, really try to within my friendship group to say look guys we need to police our own friends and if we see some one of our friends doing something that you know would would you know pinch a, guy, a girl's bum or so on and so forth to say look that's out of order and and because my kind of fear is that if these things aren't nipped in the bud not saying that all of these people are going to become rapists but if these fears aren't nipped in the bud it could lead potentially to something more sinister and and my question i'm not sure whether you'd have you agree with that or not but my question is you know we've spoken that women about women who could be who are perpetrators but overwhelmingly unfortunately it is men that are the perpetrators do you think that it's inherently inbuilt in us to have this hypersexualized 
kind of side to us now not obviously we don't all act on it but do you think that there is something to that or is it purely nurture is it purely environmental or is there some part of the nature that makes men almost more predisposed to become um sexual abusers very difficult question to answer but uh, like complex i can certainly um give you a couple of my thoughts because obviously I've been thinking about this for a long time. I, Please. So I'll start with the um, like social conditions and social context really matters here. And so all those attitudes you say, like the, uh, it's mm. brilliant that uh, I'm sorry for your family and your family member, but I'm also it's brilliant that the effect of that has been for for you know yourself and your your family to to be sensitive and co- uh, so aware of the kind of cultural and social environment of boys and girls, men and women. And what we know is in societies where there is equality between the gender genders, the more equality, the less the sexual violence, right? So, the, the you know, so right. if you won't go up to a boy and pinch his bum in a disco or a man in a disco, then why will you do it to a girl? You know, not, I don't mean in terms of attraction or whatever, but just it's worth thinking about. So, it's what we call man up mm. or the more men up to each other and call each other on these kinds of behaviors the better it will be for women and girls and the better it will be for equality and so that is brilliant and there is a man up movement in ireland and internationally and it's a brilliant movement because we can't stop sexual violence, just women. We need all our men and brothers and husbands and sis, uh, partners and so on to help us with this. So that context thing yeah. really matters and uh, brilliant that you're doing it and need to keep doing it. I mean, if you then uh, to, to narrow down to the question, you know, are boys and men more predisposed to this? I mean, I don't think that they are, to tell you the truth, but but because it isn't okay. primarily a, a sexual crime, right? So you could say, well, look, genitalia external to the body, female genitalia internal to the body, um, you know, are they more hormonally, you know, sexualized boys more than girls and boys need to you know, have uh, spread it around and all that. I actually don't think that that is the case. I think the crucial age is adolescence for boys. And I think that, you know, so when boys are prepubescent and they're learning how, you know, to come to terms with their sexuality and sexual urges, as our girls at the time, but, you know, boys because of our physiological makeup and the genitalia external to the body and all that, and arousal more easily for boys than for girls or for males and females, even to non-sexual stimuli. Adolescence is really crucial for boys and that they start to learn that that I can become aroused, it doesn't mean that I'm sexually interested. It just means I'm aroused and it, maybe it was, you know, some other, as I said, non-sexual stimuli. But also in terms of like aggression and ways of, of behaving and ways of being in the world. Um, boys around that time need to learn that uh, 
how to be emotionally responsive to themselves and to others and to girls and to to other boys and how we can how to work for equality because i think we haven't as a global society been very good at teaching our children about equality in their personal relationships with each other, with other girls, with other boys, with boys in class, with girls in class. We see that by the the increase in bullying and so on that we now know is rampant in schools. So what we need, I think, is I don't think to answer the question, I don't think boys are more predisposed Mm. to this than girls. I think, however, we need to be really mindful in pre-pubertal boys and just post-pubertal boys. I would fill schools with uh, ways of helping them understand their own physical development, physiological arousal, emotional responses, um, kindness to themselves, kindness to others. I would do the same in girls' schools, but girls... You know, where where girls talk to each other and so on. Thank God, your generation, Seb and Jim, ye talk to each other, and that's a great thing. Mm. I think to to again as an insurance policy, I do a lot of re-education or education, not even re-education, with boys in boys' schools around equality and gender equality and so on. That girls aren't more important, but they're not less. And boys aren't more important, but they're not less important. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because now that I kind of think back to our sexual education, which I, I must have been, I think, 10 or 11 when we had that, it was almost always about, um, you know, the female anatomy, of course, because that's where the baby gets carried. And it was almost all about that and very, very little about what what changes, you know, are getting made towards for us for us as going soon to be teenagers. Um, and, and just to, to, to move on a bit of, um, is how, you know, this, you've, you've kind of said that people have maybe feel shame, um, in feeling aroused sometimes when they've been sexually abused and, and then it's not actually their fault. It's just that that's a natural occurrence. Sometimes what, what are the lines between, um abuse you know i'm i'm thinking it's, sometimes they feel very blurred it's just a personal story um i when i was younger i can't remember to be honest the actual ages but when i was a must have been just under 10 so maybe seven eight nine around that age we had a neighbor she and her they had a child she'd always used to come around she was maybe three or four years older than me maybe um and she would come around and we'd play and it got to a stage one time where she started to uh, introduce sexual acts into the play right so the my parents would be downstairs um and she would try to do things to me i i wasn't aroused at all because i was too young to to simply um, and biologically speaking that like nothing happened to me but i knew something was wrong because i knew that when when we would come out of the room she would always tell me oh am i red or whatever and i'd say yes or no and like she'd wait and so i knew that we were covering something up but i was too young to understand that what we were doing was in any nature sexual uh she later told me i remember that she'd seen this on james bond which having now watched james bond you don't see those uh, those scenes they leave that to your imagination but 
I think back on this now, I don't see it as abuse per se. I don't feel abused. I don't feel like it has affected me in my relationship with my girlfriend, at least in the sexual relationship that we have. Um, so, but how are those, how is abuse defined? You know, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking back on the story and they think, was that sexual abuse or was that just kind of a weird little episode of experimentation when we were younger? How would you define ab- abuse? Yeah. Again, like when there is a thing called childhood experimentation and uh, if if it didn't feel, you know, in any way like it was exploiting of you, then it likely wasn't. Mm. However, um, for the generally, if children, the closer in age the children are, like you rarely think about that as abuse. You sometimes call it uh, sexually harmful yeah. behavior. If let's say it's a 13 year old girl and a four year old boy, you know, there's quite an age gap there. So if it's two or three years in, in closeness of the age, um, you generally don't see it as uh, abuse. You might, depending if it was, very intrusive or experienced as intrusive by one of the children you then begin to think about this as sexually harmful behavior and of course if children are doing it you do have to ask yourself where have they seen it where have they heard it has it happened to them and so on and so forth and but so in with children we tend not to talk about not call it sexual abuse we tend to call it sexually harmful behavior between small children or else experimentation. And lots of us, lots of children, I mean, I'd say it's almost been part of the growing up process for for children to experiment with each other and let me see you doing this or I'll do that or whatever, let me touch you here. That's part of growing up. But if it becomes... um, almost trapping for one child. We stick with children for the moment. If it becomes trapping, entrapping for one child, then, and it feels intrusive, then it's in the direction of sexually harmful behavior. And then if the age gap is very wide, it becomes what's called sexual abuse. So sometimes I've worked with families where there's sibling incest where there might be only two years between or three years between the children. So let's say 13-year-old brother, 10-year-old girl, and he's experimenting, Mm. starts, you know, hands in under the covers and so on, and he doesn't know what's going on, but he does it when the parents are out, obviously, or or when the parents are downstairs, all that. But then one day he goes into the bathroom, uh, when she's having a shower and she feels really uncomfortable. And then he gets in, you know, so it it's increasing and she begins to experience that as intrusive. Now, for both, okay. hmm. they, you know, I've, I've had su- such cases where they disclose then later in life. But again, you wouldn't see him necessarily as like a sex offender, especially the attitude to disclosure. So when the, when the sister tells she's now, we'll say, 20, and she tells, and he's 23, and he's mortified, but he says, yeah, I was, I don't know why I did that, and whatever, you know, you've, you know, you're not dealing with a 
grade A sex offender or anything. So both need help to get over the whole thing. Um, and it it was sexually harmful because blah blah blah. Um, but well, with regard to se- the if there's an age, children by definition can't consent to sex. So in Ireland, under seventeen year olds can't contra- consent to sex with adults. And so the greater the age gap, uh, generally, if it's an adult with a minor, there's no other word for it, only, or phrase for it, only sexual violence or sexual abuse. Thanks, uh, Maria. It's uh, very insightful. And I really want to talk about the like recovery or rehabilitation process for both the, the perpetrator and the victim or survivor. But first, I'd love to know your thoughts on why you think sexual abuse was so prevalent within the Catholic Church in Ireland? Um, was it was it a lot to do with the power that they had at the time? Yes, I think it was to do, and because it was prevalent in the United States as well and prevalent in many other countries. Um, so I think it's it was to do with the power of the Catholic Church. It was to do with the systems of formation that the men had, i.e. that they, they had a rule book on empathy if you like, or morality, they learned from the rules rather than actually the relational, uh, how to be empathetic with people and so on. It was about power mm. and And so, um, and obviously about sexuality issues and many of the clergy offenders wanted to, that I worked with, I believe were not predators before they went into the Catholic Church. This is controversial, but I don't believe that paedophiles, inverted commas, try to gain access to the, into the Catholic Church to gain access to children to abuse them. In my research, I found that ordinary young fellows who wanted to be good people, uh, good priests, good men, whatever, sometimes were avoiding, um, you know, fear of sexuality or various issues to do with that, but sometimes that, but not always. And they entered the Catholic Church in good faith to be good people. And that they ended up abusing children, in my view, was to do with the power of the Catholic Church, opportunity, uh, very bad formation uh, systems, very bad education for the power that they were going to have in people's lives. And Marie, do you think that... um... You know, celibacy is obviously a huge part of being uh, being a priest uh, in the traditional Catholic um, way of life. Do you think that that may have uh, of played a part? I, just simply off my own kind of conjecture, it would, it would appear to me that um, a sexually frustrated man is more likely to abuse than someone who maybe has a very healthy um, relationship, sexual relationship with a partner. But you see, is that a fair assumption to make? No, that's not a fair assumption because actually, it's premise. Your your question, Seb, is premised on the idea that sexual violence is about sex, sexuality, and sex mm. is part of it. But it, as I said earlier, it's not the primary driver in many cases. And in so, in relation to celibacy, mm. um, it's not celibacy per se was the problem. In my view, the problem was that you had many celibates, many men who joined the ranks of the Catholic Church who wanted to be priests. And as part of becoming a priest, 
a condition of that was that you um, adapt a celibate life. But a lot of them didn't want to be celibates. A lot of them now don't want to be celibates. A lot of them mm. have relationships with women and men. So the problem was not celibacy per se, because some people can live it, live it well when they want to, like when they see it as their calling. But when you have an angry cleric who wants to be a priest but doesn't want to be a celibate, and then if he gets angry enough, you know, if the bishop is mean or the system doesn't take care of him enough and all these things, you know, it's only a matter of time that he will find inverted commas, as many of them had said to me, you know, a little secret or a little relationship uh, on the side that was intimate for them. The problem was that the little relationship on the side was with a 14-year-old boy who couldn't give consent by definition. and But the priest hadn't enough formation. He knew well what they were doing. I've never met a sex offender who thought what they were doing was right. I've met loads of sex offenders. Mm. Uh, mm. Majority, the, not the majority, every single one of them knew what they were doing was wrong. But what they didn't bargain for often was the level of harm they were doing. They thought that they were, they knew they were doing wrong. They knew it wasn't right, but they didn't, until they often came to therapy, realize the impact, the level of impact on their victim. They thought like that maybe the child, uh, you know, I was educating him and now he'd grow up to be a man who knew about sex or um, that the child, a father who said to me, I thought she was asleep. You know, because the child kept her eyes closed when he was uh, abusing her. Um, I thought she was asleep and she'd never remember this kind of thing. So they didn't bargain uh, for the level of harm that they were causing. Um, Because if they really had understood the level of harm, you know, you have a bigger problem of of a sadistic kind of nature. Mm. Get with some rapist where they absolutely know what they're doing, adult rapists. But... um, that would be a sadistic rapist. But most child abusers don't don't really believe that they're doing a lot of harm. They rationalize it and, uh, you know, justify it and kind of deny the level of injury and so on to themselves. And especially if that child, like they've abused the child last night and then tomorrow the child comes down and says, Daddy, will you play Lego with me? Should the 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 father says, "Oh, thank God," I, you know, he's uh, we're grand, or the young boy who comes yeah. back home to Father Johnny for more music lessons, you know, um, or invites Father Johnny, as some of the victims had done, to bear, to um, christen their child, and sure, Father Johnny waltzes on in his life, thinking, "Well, I never did any harm on that." boy until the boy is now 31 has his own child and realizes jeepers crikey and by this stage father johnny has now christened their child and the the father of the child has realized hey he abused me you know to various things in his own life he's come to realize whatever so it's very damaging this Mm -hmm. like it's very hard for victims um because the better the perpetrator, the better the perpetrator at it, like, let's say, the perpetrator, the more skilled, let's say, the offender, the more they will 
have the child or the adult indeed in a in a prison of secrets and in a in a belief system that they contributed to it and skilled offenders are very skilled they won't say to the child don't tell mammy what i have done to you or the priest won't say don't tell your dad what i did to you they will say don't tell mammy what we are doing so they've shifted a responsibility to the child make the child complicit or don't tell you mm. the priest will say don't tell your parents what you were doing around here with me you know as though the child was responsible uh, for what had happened very subtle but very skilled very manipulative Marie, can you talk about your work in the Granada Institute with uh, sexual perpetrators and how you help them rehabilitate or, you know, move away from this behavior that they were mm. acting upon? Well, you know, the first in the Granada Institute, we had an individual. Uh, they'd come and were individually assessed, if you like, and then they'd go into um, a group therapy program, a combination of individual and group therapy. And then various people in their lives, like their family members or their uh, bishops in the case of clergy or religious leaders in the case of clergy, um, family in the case of, and, and indeed the family of clergy as well, they'd all be invited in to to the program for various parts of, of um, acknowledging responsibility, you know, facing their person with the harms that they had done. But anyway, and for support for families. Mm-hmm. But how we did them was, was basically we had a kind of a program where the first part of the program was they would tell their own life story because we would believe and get them to write the life story and because we believed that abuse comes out of the life story it's part of your life story many offenders would like you to think that it's like Mm. something came over me from outside that's not of me if you like and we wanted them to own to take ownership of what they had done and so by telling the life story, we'd begin to be able to see the points at which they were making decisions to be less kind or put other people before themselves and so on. And sometimes they'd been abused themselves and blah, blah, blah. But we'd hear the life story. And then we would do um, what we called the story. I'm quite a narrative therapist and I like story it's all about story so the life story was one then the next was the story of abusing and we'd get these men in a group up to a blackboard or a a flip chart and they'd pick let's say one of their victims and they'd start to tell us we'd ask them here's what's interesting Seb and Jim what was interesting is you'd say to them upload it now to the flip chart and we prepare them for it and we'd say I want you to tell me now when how this all happened with that child. We'll say it's seven-year-old Mary, how you abused seven-year-old Mary. And they'd tell you very quickly, you know, well, she was in the presbytery one day and, you know, blah, 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 and it's over in a minute. And we would then slow it all down and we'd go to, when did you first see Mary? When did you first begin to think about Mary? When did you begin to think about abusing Mary? When, when, you know, and we'd ask them these questions. And basically it was 
the, what they would tell in two minutes, we would spend maybe four four hours getting them to go into detail of how they talked themselves into it, how they talked the child into it, how they got the child to keep the secret, uh, how they how they disempowered, if you like, the child's parents and got the child's parents to think that they were a suitable person to have their child in the presbytery or going on that outing to the beach with other kids. Once a week. How they worked on the parents. And so they were the kinds of questions. So it was almost like we were ahead of the men. And when we would put it to them that we know you were thinking about these things, so how... how Tell me the story of how you talked yourself into it, how you talked the child into it, how you overcame your disinhibition, how you got the parents to believe. They would tell us. And what was crucial there was you could begin to think that men who abused just did it like that, you know, spur of the moment. But actually, there's nothing spur of the moment about it at all. And I learned that from working over a long time with men who abuse. Even like in in uh, with rape cases, they spot the woman on the bus. They think about it. They're, they get off the bus. They follow her behind the bus. They're thinking things about the woman. Uh, who does she think? She doesn't know the woman. Who does she think she is? She's up herself. She, you know, all the stereotypical. Mm. Well, look at her. She, you know, she can have anyone she likes. You know, blah. They, the woman has never met, and then they jump on the woman and blah, I'll take her down a peg or two or whatever. When we ask them, we tell them, we know you're thinking about these things before you even assault her. Can you tell me before you assaulted her what you were thinking about when you spot her? And clear to God, they tell you, because it's all in there. There's nothing spur of, spur of the moment about these things. It's very, uh, if you slow it all down, you can see that it's quite deliberate and quite intentional. It might be a short period, like following, seeing someone at a bus stop, following on the bus, or it might be a long time, like seeing the kid in the GAA, beginning to think about that child, beginning to fantasize about it, beginning to see that, like, his mum and dad don't come every Thursday night. I live nearby, I could say, to training. I could say, I'll, I'll drop him home, you know, and then he touches him inverted commas touches the child up in the car and then says now don't tell your mammy and daddy what you were doing and then next thursday the child is back at training and mammy and daddy are delighted that you know the coach is dropping the kid home because it's local and they've three other kids in there you know that's how it's very calculated and so as a therapist at the granada that was a part of the work that we would get them to tell us the story of abusing exactly how and whatever and then we would do victim empathy work and I had I got a woman to make a tape for me. Uh, she'd been abused by her three brothers, and she made this tape and just made it a lot, just a little tape about. Um, she she started was really powerful, and I used to play this for the men in in therapy when we came to the victim empathy work. And then I had a few videos and so on, and I'd show them that. Um, but I'll come back to this tape because it's very interesting. I asked this woman would she make a tape of the impact of of uh, impact of abuse on her life that I could use with men in treatment and um, who, who had abused children. And she said she would. And so it starts by playing the mission. 
you know, that beautiful song, the tape is a few minutes of the mission. And then the mission just cuts off like mid mid bar. It stops. And she says to them, Mm. She speaks to directly to the men. I didn't give her any instruction other than that it would be. And she speaks directly. Um, this is what uh, my life was like when I was abused. Prior to that, my life was like the beautiful mission. I was eight years old or whatever. And from the time the abuse, the abuse came, it, it was like the beautiful music went out. And I was left in this. And she says, I'm making this tape for you men in the hope that by listening to me and my story, that some of you may think of the impact on your on your victims if you're ever thinking of doing this again to any other child. And so she goes on to tell them the story um, of how it was impacted. And then the final bit she says to them is, she's a nurse, this woman and she says, ultimately, what I sacrificed in my life, but, or what was sacrificed, what was taken from me by this abuse, was my capacity to have children. She said, I was physically capable, but I was incapable of being close to another man. And she said, so I'm now 45. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, my child potential for having children is now past. But she says, in making this today... And in trying to help you understand the impact on children, maybe she said, while I don't have children of my own, maybe I will have little children in the world who are saved from the potential abuse that you men could go on and do. And then she plays the mission again and it goes on. Now, like you couldn't play that for a man who's an hour in therapy. But I've explained to you, we did, you know, the assessment, then we did the life story work, we did then uh, the story of abuse, and then, you know, we do victim empathy. Like, many of these men were ready, were open, they were emotionally open, because it was a respectful program, like we weren't nailing them up against the wall, because that we knew that wouldn't work. And we weren't shaming them, because there's no point in shaming someone who's already full of shame. Um, that's like useless. Although mm. like, we might feel better sometimes humanly if you make someone feel bad if they've done terrible things and you just get out your anger. In therapeutic work, that's useless. You're better to do nothing than do that. Pile on more shame. Mm. But these men were ready to accept the impact of their actions. And then they, we, I had um, a tape. It was actually, it was a DVD RTE had made it. And it was like, uh, it was on male rape. And they had four different varieties of boys who'd been abused. Like a boy who was abused in his family as a little boy. A man telling his story then. A student who I think had been in UCD and was attacked by three men and was raped on his way, anally raped on his way home from college. And then another man who was raped in a gay relationship and then another man who was abused by uh, the scout leader or whatever. And so we show these tapes. Uh, They all Mm. had Irish accents. That was very important. There was no point in an Irish group of men because you're to to play American tapes or American accents. I wanted Irish accents because you're trying to get the empathy going trying to get them to identify Mm. and then also in the groups 
We also had some of maybe of eight men, there might have been two, well, where 50% of our men had been abused themselves. We never ex- accepted that or experienced that as an excuse for their abusing. It was always about power and control and so on, all the things, anger and sexuality, all those things. But sometimes I did individual work with those men around their own abuse with the witnessing of the other men they weren't allowed to speak they were just when when asked they were allowed to respond to the man who was doing the individual work and you know one man who was who had abused a number of boys himself was abused a priest he'd abused a number of boys in the course of rugby training and he tells the story that his father who was older than much older than his mother he died and uh, three weeks after the father's death, this boy was back in school. He was 11-year-old, um, and the Christian brother asked him to stay back after school to help, you know, clean up the room, and he was delighted. Like, his father was three weeks dead now, and he felt the Christian brother was taking an interest in him, and the Christian brother proceeded to abuse him, and over the course of the next year, abused him. Hand up the trouser, the little short trousers, um, into the genitalia, all that. And so these other men in the group... Mm were then, they knew this man because he was part of the group, but now they were listening to his experience of abuse. So all the time we were trying to build, I was helping him, you know, recover from his own abuse, but it was in the witnessing of these other men, and they were empathic for him. So all the time we're trying to get victim empathy going. Um, And then the next part of the program was some sexuality work, and then if you were, then the final bit was like, you know, how to repair relationships that you had damaged, you know, with your family, with the victim. We'd write letters that would never be sent to the victim, you know, dear Mary, or um, I'm, I've been in therapy and I didn't realize it at the time, um, but I now have fully acknowledged the wrongdoing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'd come to the group and they'd read that out and others mm. would Mm-hmm. And then we'd the final part was you know how to repair relationships, but also if this were ever to help to happen to you again that you were inclined towards abusing someone, what what how would you reroute that? What how would you stop this thinking? How would you stop? How would you bring in the realization immediately? You know, so it was almost like the insurance policy, and ultimately, how would you call someone? And say to them, my head has gone crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, imagining myself fantasizing about a child or whatever. You know, so we'd build all those in. And we had very, like, we haven't evaluated that program thoroughly enough. It's now lo- no longer in existence. But we have, there are, it are lots of evaluations of sex offender treatment. And you can get down the recidivism rate from, you know, let's say 20% or whatever, down to 3% or 2%, like very good outcomes. Uh, Marie, I know you've, uh, you've probably heard this question um, before. Um, how would, you know, sexual abuse stories like Harvey Weinstein and so on, they create real visceral reactions am- amongst the public. Um, and it kind of splits you the public into two sides and well or they see it as two sides right you've got the victim or the survivor and then you've got the abuser and a lot of us don't share the empathy that you do with the perpetrators um probably wrongly and we only see the side of the abuser H- how would you 
answer the question you know, what side are you on and i know people have asked you that before what, what what's your response to that i know you've done work with both victims and abusers but you know you've done a lot of really good work with um with perpetrators uh, but sometimes people may think that you're choosing sides that you're valuing them over the victim what, what would your response be to that yeah it's you know um you may have seen this in something i wrote and i certainly mention it in the film which we can talk about at the end but um i was asked by a victim mm. one day uh, i'll answer your question by telling you very quickly this story um i this i was it, go ahead i was i was treating an, an offender and a victim asked to see me because he wanted to tell me he wanted to make he knew his offender was in treatment and he wanted to tell the victim wanted to tell me his story to make sure that I knew the impact of the offender's actions on at least one of his victims. He had a couple of victims, mm. a number of victims, more than a couple. So I met the victim, beautiful man in his thirties, and um, a young married man, and he had been abused. One of these rugby children, um, and it had ruined his life in many ways. Now he reco- was recovering, let's say, um, but he had changed school, and his his academic career had suffered and all that. Um, but anyway, he, so he wanted to tell me lots about things, and I was about three three uh, hours with this victim, and he was telling me this, and he was telling me this, and telling me that, and then he would ask me questions. Do you think offenders can change? Do you think your man could change? Do you think you know is he likely to abuse again? Those kinds of questions. I was answering all his questions, and then he'd tell me more about his life and whatever. Mm-hmm. We'd good conversation. And at the end of it, he, I was, we were finished then and I was just about to leave and uh, he thanked me and I thanked him. And I said, look, you know, if you need to keep in touch or if you want, he wasn't looking for therapy from me or anything. He just wanted me to know his story so that when I'm working with the perpetrator, I know it. And then as I was leaving, he said, can I ask you another question? And he said, Marie, whose side are you on? And like nobody had mm. that, that directly in that way before. And um, uh, so I trained as a systemic psychotherapist many years prior. And um, as a systemic psychotherapist, there is this term called uh, neutrality in in your positioning. It's new, it's not you're not morally neutral, but your positioning if you're working as a systemic therapist with a family is your position is almost neutral neutral. So you can work with the father, the mother, the child, mm-hmm. you know, equally, if you like. So it, the term was morally it was not morally neutral, but neutral positioning. But when this victim asked me this question, it came into my mind that um, you know, neutral positioning. And I just felt it, it quickly in my mind. I felt it's too trite an answer. It's, it doesn't cut it. Right. So I said to the victim, mm. said, 5149. I said, I'm 51% on your side. I said, you were the child, you were the victim, you were the innocent, you did nothing wrong. And I said, I'm 49% on the priest's side, but it was a priest who abused him. I said, because he, I've, I've kind of glimpsed his soul. I know he has done his best in therapy, is doing his best. I believe there's more that, you know, he, he, I believe he never wants to do this again. I believe he's going to try and make good. 
And I said to the victim, I said, like, mm. if he has wasn't taking responsibility, let's say the Einstein, uh, Harvey Weinstein, I said, I would have said, you know, 99 your side, 1% his side. But I said, it's 51 you because you're the innocent, 49 him because he's really doing everything he can. And I believe will continue to never offend. And the victim said, thanks. And he accepted all that and understood that and understood my reasoning and whatever. And I was back in the therapy room then with the priest a few weeks later, a week later, and I was telling him in a group all about the meeting and, you know, the details I that I was allowed to tell from the victim and so on. And then mm. I told the priest about the man's question and um, I told him as well, I said, so when I answered the young man and I said, Four, 51 his his side and 49 your side and I tell him the logic as well like he was the innocent child blah 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 and you were the person who did wrong or whatever and the priest started to cry and I hadn't seen him cry in therapy up to this point and he wept like cry wasn't mm. and wept and wept and wept and wept and when he you know he was all stopped and we the other man we all just sat there kind of in silence with him and so on and I said can you tell me what the tears were were about or what propelled the tears and he said that he had come to realize in the way that I had spoken you know in in the words that I'd spoken that he said that I will never be can never be humanly loved again because of what I've done he said like my mother couldn't love me nobody could love me humanly he said because I've just done so much wrong that I will never be fully loved. They'll nearly love me. And he said, because you're the person, he said, that knows me most. I've told you most. I've kind of, you've glimpsed my soul. And mm. and he said, even you couldn't fully love me. You can nearly love me, but you can't. And so anyway, blah, 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 we carried on. But, you know, well, I had to revisit the question then for myself because I wasn't, happy then mm. with with where that left me also it was like like you're no there's no point working therapeutic mm. with people if you're not willing to keep changing yourself like there's no point i mean it's it's a challenge but there's no point in thinking you've all the answers um i'm just being so close to everything if you're you won't be effective so i had to go back to the question this time i came to a different answer and the answer I came to was that I'm on the side of all human beings. This is whose side I'm on, Seb. I'm on the side of all human beings mm. who are doing their very best with honesty and integrity to accept wrongdoing, to acknowledge what they've done, and also the people who've been hurt. I'm, do I'm on the side of all human beings who are working from a position of honesty and integrity. And I'm against violence and abuse and cruelty of all sorts. And that's whose side I'm on. I'm on the side of all sorts of uh, human beings who are doing their very best to be honest and work with integrity and against abusive practices. And I'm against, that includes then, I'm against dishonesty. And I'll fight with and work hard mm. Um I won't, I'm not a pushover and I won't be just swayed by someone who's trying to, you know, pull the wool over my eyes. 
I'll, I'll take a very hard line there. But if someone is doing their best and trying to open up with the resources that they have available to them, cheekers, I'll get into the trenches with them, even if they've done wrong. Now, mm. the, the, the last bit of that story was, of course, what about the victim that I had said 49, 51 and 51, 49? I met him again in a courtroom when the priest was being sentenced. And I said to him, he, he was in the court on his own, and um, I talked to him at the end of the thing. And I said, remember that conversation, the 5149? And he said, I do. And I said, you know, I've kind of come to realise um, that, you know, if people are trying to do their best, I didn't rerun the whole conversation, you know, maybe, maybe I need to be able to speak mm. with them and whatever. And he said, Marie, I've come to realise he said, there are no winners and there are no losers in this sexual abuse. Because he could see the priest, like the priest has gone off to jail now. And he said, I could, there are no winners and there are no losers. He said, there just is. We just have to keep going and try and do the best we can. And he said, mm. I'm pleased that man has been, you know, made accountable. I'm pleased you're trying to help him do his thing. And he said, I just have to go on with my life. There are no winners and there are no losers. Yeah, I I hope that maybe in time I come to... Sorry, go ahead, Marie, go ahead. But I think that I was going to say that was what he had come to. But I think there are... uh, I think there are losers, and this is where maybe restorative justice comes in. If an offender continues to be in denial and continues to be defensive Mm. about the wrongdoing that he admitted and continues to torture victim the victim by refusing to accept responsibility i mean he is continuing to torture the victim and in that case you know victims continue to suffer but if an offender can Mm. admit to the wrongdoing then you know we we have the potential for healing for both really yeah, I, I, like I was saying, I hope sometime, someday to to get to your conclusion and to reach those levels of empathy. Um, I, I can't honestly say that I'm there yet, but that's why we have this podcast uh, and the conversations that we're having with you are so insightful and at least show you that that path is a path that can be taken, you know? So that's really, uh, really helpful and really inspiring um, answer. Yeah, just, just to put in... Um, James, go ahead, please. Yeah, it, was, it was really nice hearing your kind of personal development. And it reminded me of a conversation we we had with a therapist last week who said that a therapist is only as good as the therapy or the work that they do on themselves. You know, the, the constant uh, trying to develop and improve. And like you said, if, if you just stay at a fixed point, how good can you be or how much help can you give? Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And um, to just to move on to... No, well, no, I, thank you. Uh, no. Just to move on to uh, the kind of heat. I just wanted sorry. to add something. I just sorry, Jim. I just wanted to add something there to 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 what Seb said, um, which was about empathy. Yeah, no problem. Like, you can be empathetic to someone you know who's hurt you, but it doesn't mean that you don't protect yourself from them going forward. Do you know what I mean? So someone can even forgive someone who's hurt them uh, badly but it doesn't mean that I want them to be my best pal in my life you know I can still protect myself from people mm. who hurt hurt me badly but I can wish them well let's say but I don't want necessarily or need 
to be in their company or um, have them in my life. So empathy doesn't mean that you yeah. wipe the slate, slate clean. It just means that you can begin to understand that there's a human tragedy in there somewhere for that person, the wrongdoer too. Mm, important to make that distinction. Yeah, thanks for that. Jim? Jim? Sorry, yeah, I just wanted to ask about the, the healing process then for the survivor. Uh, I guess this is a perfect way to introduce restorative justice. But yeah, I would love to know uh, the ways in which you help survivors who maybe initially aren't even interested in restorative justice and how that process developed. Well, survivors have different needs and sometimes um, they have different justice needs and different healing needs and so on. And some like therapy for survivors, I won't go into all that, but but basically many survivors need to be believed, they need to tell the story, they need the story validated, they need to be vindicated, they need sometimes individuals to, um, you know, believe them, but then they also need collective um, belief, if you like, and societal belief. And that's where the courts and so on can come in, that they need the court or the state to say this is wrong, what you did to that person, what this wrongdoer did to this survivor. And because of that, you know, the state is intervening and we're going to say you're wrong and we're going to punish you and so on. So all that. And then survivors often need um, to some of them blame themselves. And there we have plenty of little skills and ways of helping survivors realize that they they uh, didn't you know that they have just taken on the shame and guilt of a of an offender and we have ways of helping survivors give it right back and put it right back on the offender and we can do that in therapy rooms using empty chairs using you know pictures of small children so you were six when this happened let's see a picture of a six-year-old how could that six-year-old you know and they might have a niece who's six and get them to get a picture of a niece who is six or themselves when they were six and say how could you be responsible you know blah blah so loads of ways therapeutically um of working with survivors and sexuality work and all sorts of things but then some survivors feel mm -hmm. that they need to confront their offender. And you could do an empty chair, you know, imagine them sitting on it and whatever. But for many survivors, uh, they feel they need to get into a room with them and they need to make a few statements or they need to ask questions or they need to hear his explanations or how he came to do what he did, or how he came to do it to me, so to speak. Um, now, the, your question about how would you, so that's how we would work with survivors. You work with them in therapy, you work with them in, in individual or uh, group support, using multiple techniques, and mainly letting them find a reclaim of power. It's all about that. It's so they shape mm -hmm. the therapy. It's all about taking back power. And so you don't want a therapist to take power over the person's life. They've got to take back power and ways of helping them with that. But many survivors then want to confront the offender or meet the offender. And um, that's where restorative justice comes in. But if a victim doesn't want to do that, then a victim 
has the perfect right not to meet the offender or confront them or anything else. So for some victims who've been through the criminal justice system, reading out a victim impact statement has been very helpful and they've gotten a lot of benefits from it, telling the impact of the crime on them. But many victims get no justice whatsoever. And even those who have been through the criminal justice system, they feel they need to get the offender in a room and they need to face them across the table. And that's where restorative justice comes Mm. in. Beautiful. Thanks, Mary. Would you like to talk about the film that you helped develop and and shape that released last year with um, Alba? I think uh, if if that's okay with you, I will. And um, because it actually brings restorative justice to life, I suppose. Um, And you you were asking a little about restorative justice there. So um, uh, telling a little bit about the film. Okay, so I was in in UCD in my office one day and an email came in. Dear Marie, uh, this is based on a true story and it's in the public domain, so it's perfectly fine to tell you the story. Dear Marie, um, you don't know me. Uh, Would it be possible to meet with you? Uh, You trained my sister in UCD. She was trained to be a social worker. And when I told her what I would like to do, um, she suggested I contact you. Could I make an appointment to meet you? Yours sincerely, Alva Griffith. So I wrote back to Alva. Um, I didn't know what she wanted. I couldn't even remember her sister. She didn't name her sister. I couldn't remember. I, you know, trained a lot of students. So I wrote back to Alvin and said, yes, I could meet on whatever date, blah, blah, blah. Would that work for you? Here's my number you can call. And so anyway, we, we met and uh, in I have a small little kind of practice and Alva came in. I didn't know if she was looking for therapy. I didn't know what she was looking for. And uh, so she arrived in, beautiful uh, woman in her late 20s. And she said, paraphrasing now but when she was a young woman student finished her studies the year after her degree the summer after her degree she was working in a bar took a night link bus home and a man followed her and sexually assaulted her Um, and random stranger assault and she said he was apprehended you know eventually people came by they apprehended they caught him ran after him caught him blah 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 he served a prison sentence and she said he's now out. Um, quite a long prison sentence. He's now out. And she said, I'd like to meet him. Can you help me? And so I said to her, I was going off the next day to Belgium to start um, a restorative justice project, uh, research thing funded by the EU. And I said to her, have you ever heard of restorative justice? And she said, uh, not really. Is that what is that what my sister was saying? I had shown some uh, tapes, uh, some videos and whatever restorative justice in the course of teaching her sister. And when she was telling her family, she said all over the years when she was telling her family what she, that she wanted to meet him, her parents and her sisters and everybody was saying, you're mad or he's, you know, mad and blah, blah, blah. Why would you want to do that? And so on. Um, this sister who had said, I think uh, Marie Keenan showed a video on I think that's restorative justice you're talking about why don't you call her and see anyway so with that woman with Alva it took us some time but we found the offender and he was 
initially willing to meet her. Then he changed his mind because his family kind of tried to talk him out of it and said, look, you've suffered enough, you know, the media and everything else. You're trying to get on with your life. You've done jail, all that. Anyway, then he changed his mind again. He, so he changed and said he wouldn't. And then he changed his mind and decided to meet her. And we did. And the film called The Meeting is based on the actual meeting that occurred and Alva played herself. But so what happened in the actual, when I asked Alva, so as part of the preparation, why would you want to meet him and whatever? Alva said, I'm coming up on 30 now. And she said, I, she had a small child, you know, from her other next her relationship, like from her partner. And she said, I feel I can't go on in my life. I'm imagining I, I can't go on with the anger and annoyance and upset I have in my mind. And I've tried with therapy and with meditation and yoga and Reiki and everything to get over this. And I can't. And I feel and I've felt from the beginning that if I could have a conversation with him, that would help me. And so um, primarily, she said, I want to change the memory card. She said, my memory, every time there's something on television use or something anywhere, she said, I'm triggered back to that night, that field you pulled me into and whatever. And she said, I need to change the memory card. And so we met him and she had the meeting with him. And it's in this film called uh, The Meeting. And Alva now talks sometimes publicly with me and blah, blah, blah. And she says she changed the memory. She had questions she wanted to ask him. Why did you do it? Why me? Mm-hmm. Questions she wanted to ask him. Did you intend to murder me? And so on. Did you intend to kill me? Various other questions. She, stuff she wanted to tell him about the impact on her and blah, blah, blah. But she says whenever now there's a radio program or a television program about restorative justice or about sexual violence or crime, she says she doesn't always trigger back to it. But she said if she if she thinks back, what she's back to is in the meeting where she had the power. She was across the table from the man who draped her and she was able to ask him, uh, you know, tell him and ask him. And he opened as honestly as he could to answer her questions. And so she says she sees like a broken human being, you know, blah, 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 blah. She doesn't want him to be her pal. She never wants to meet him again. But she feels empowered. It's almost like she could feel power, a transaction of power coming back to her, personal power. And she wished him well at the end in his life. And she said, people will find it really strange that I wish you well. I want only the best for you. And she said, but I really do. And I mean it. And he wished her well and blah, blah, blah. But she now says that she changed the memory card by sitting across the table in an hour and a half. Now, we preparation for several um, months, but she changed the memory card. Yeah, and we'll put the link on our on our show descriptions for anyone who wants to download that um, film and watch that. That that would be that sounds amazing. Um, Marie, just before we let you go, we've got just two more questions. Uh, but the the set, the question I've got is um, how obviously after all these years dealing with such um, you know horrible stories, at least at the at, on the outset, how how have you kept? What's your image of men? what what what's your overarching image has it been tainted at all you know you hear of the victims who 
for very understandably um sometimes want nothing to do with men or at least don't want a, a sexual relationship with another man uh you know like the the example you gave people now don't have kids because of their relate the the things that have happened to them and even just in these conversations and when i think about what what we what men have done or all of us do it it sometimes leaves me disgusted and i'm a man myself so i was just wondering how how has that changed your image of of men throughout the years no, I, I, like I, I have a beautiful son, no more than the two of you. I mean, uh, you know, a lovely, gorgeous uh, man who's now in his early 30s, um, 31. And I have, I was married for 26 years to a good man. And I have had, you know, obviously the ups and downs. So I have a brother, I had a father and whatever. It hasn't changed my view of men at all. I don't know what it has done. It has, it has shown me the fragility of the human condition because women are capable of this too unless mm. although men do it so i don't see it i mean i'm a feminist in the sense that i stand up for equality and i want equality everywhere and i want to as a mother to try and do the best to get my boy i'd call him into line if he was you know in any way you know thinking he was better than any girl or woman or any of that but I uh, done my best with that, but I uh, no, it hasn't changed my my view of men. I mean, men, in my view, are creative, are beautiful, um, are strong, are warm, are kind, are empathic. Um, some of my best friends are men, and I just don't see it as a problem of men. I see it uh, um, as some of my female friends are wonderful and I've lots of female friends but I've equally been quite hurt by you know some women in my life and female colleagues who you know so mm. I don't really see it as a problem of men or women I see it as the human condition and as a problem of power and control and equality if you like and the fragility of the human condition but in doing this work I've always had had to have a few really good male friends in my life. And I did a lot of work, not a lot. I did some work over the years with musicians, men who were creating music, men who were writing and so on. And those men were very important. I don't know if they realized how important they were, you know, as a corrective. But in a way, they didn't need to be a corrective. I, mm. But it's... I, I love male students sometimes. I mean, one of my colleagues, I was standing up for male students in the class because sometimes in a class of social work students, you might have uh, 50 females and then you'd have three males. Sometimes now we can have five or 10, or yeah. but mostly you'd have a small number. And, you know, one of my friends was a very strong feminist and she'd be going in talking about domestic abuse and all men and all men this and all men that. And then some of the men had come to me because I'd be talking about sexual violence and I'd be saying, look, primarily perpetrated by men, but this isn't a problem of men. You know, how we're not just uh, stratified in life along gender lines. That's first wave feminism. But we're, we're also uh, positioned in life along class and health and o other lines. It's not just gender. Um, that defines how we are, who we are, and how we are in our lives. And then one day I had a few of the men came to me and they were giving out about being subjected to these lectures where they're told that all men and all this. And so one of my colleagues accused me one day, oh, the men come to you because, you know, you kind of, uh, you know, listen to them. And 
I said, of course I listen to them. I said, but if girls come, I listen to them too. So I don't really see, I don't think it <laughs> distorted my view on men. Um, but I think it has made me wary of, how, not wary, but I kind of know how in a power position, women, men or women can abuse power. And, you know, 14-year-olds, girls and boys can bully six-year-olds. That's abuse of power, whether they're boys or girls. And girls can be terrible bullies. Mm. So I, I don't think it is disorder. And I unfortunately still keep falling for men. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a million, Marie. Uh, this has been a really insightful conversation. And just before we let you go, we'd love to ask you uh, what you do personally to keep on top of your mental health. Um, I, I'll say a couple of things. The first thing is I couldn't do what I do um, in, in the work, in my professional work, uh, without a sense of spirituality. So I wouldn't be, you know, a mask or or I wouldn't be, you know, a card color, a card carrying member of any faith or religion, although I was baptized Catholic and all that. But it's I'd be quite a spirituality and a strong spirituality. And I believe that I always can because of that spirituality, I can see I can see what people do that's wrong but i can see beyond as well to the fragility of the human beyond mm. so there i don't think you could do what i the work i do without a sense of spirituality and stay strong in it and stay well in it and stay not cynical because you know it would be very mm. easy to become cynical and so on but the other things I do, I have a few really good male friends and a few really good female friends. Um, but I dance. I dance and I dance and I dance. And I've always danced. I dance up and down the country. I dance um, in Spain Portugal, and anywhere. And it's like at the moment, it's country and Western dancing. And it has been that for 10 years. Jiving, quick step, ball, um, waltzing. Uh, slow fox trots the whole lot and I've done a bit of ballroom and I did Irish Kaylee dancing before that set dancing and I did Irish dancing and I did disco and I did a step dancing when I was from four years on so I've always danced dancing keeps me sane is, is there no Marie when you're dancing <laughs> no Marie <laughs> I know a lot of the bands right the country and western bands and they say, oh, there is definitely Marie, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's, a, it's a, a kind of a performer. It's a show-off. I'm a bit of a show-off <laughs> when I'm dancing. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a pretty good dancer. And people say to me, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, oh, God, like imagine trying to teach a partner who doesn't dance, a male partner, you know, who doesn't dance to dance. And they say, oh, my God, mm. eat and all that. But I've been doing it since I was four. So it comes naturally. I glide around the floor. I just I'm light on my feet. I love the music. I listen to music all the time. I listen to country music all the time. I listen I'm starting to play guitar and I sing a little bit, not not well, um, and not well on the guitar, but I'm trying. But I dance, I just dance. So is there no Marie? No, there is Marie. <laughs> 
uh, people say <laughs> sometimes on the dance floor, <laughs> people say to me on the dance floor, um, you know, uh, and I, I'm going to write a book on this soon, um, started into it now, um, you know, ha- God, it's great dancing with you, or whatever they say. Sometimes it's a chat up line, you know, sometimes it's not. Um, but uh, people tell me, females and males, dancing saved my life. And I say, really? How did that? How did that happen? And they say, well, after separation, I wouldn't go out. And then somebody said, come to dance or after the death of a child, or after, you know, cancer, loss of breast, or whatever, they say, I had no confidence, and then I went out, dancing mm. my life. So I'm writing a book called Dancing Saved My Life, working title, Dancing Saved My Life, um, but it certainly has enhanced mine. Brilliant. Marie, we'll, we'll definitely share that, that link once that book is out and published. Um, do you have any other websites maybe or, or Instagram, uh, sorry, Instagram, social media handles that you could share um, for maybe who people want to, after listening to this, maybe want to reach out to you personally or find out more information about restorative justice or, or any of the topics that we've spoken about? Yeah, I can send those on to you if you like the, you know, my UCD thing and ways Perfect. of thing and all that. Yeah. Perfect, guys. We'll put those in the show notes um, to anyone who's listening and want to find out more information on Marie or any of the topics we've spoken about. They'll all be there so you can find those links easier uh, easy enough. Um, guys, thank you for listening um, to this podcast. We know it's been a bit of a long one, but I think thoroughly um, informative and on my end, uh, enjoyable. So thank you so much, Marie, for your time. It's been re- a real pleasure. Uh, and um, just once again, thank you so much. It's been so, so, so helpful for me and, and for hopefully for those who have listened as well. You're more than welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Um, really, really. If you if you if you've liked this podcast or you think this may be useful for someone else, please like, rate, subscribe, and until next time, um, stay safe. Bye.